You're listening to the Radical Departures podcast, your source for startup storytelling. I'm your host, Abby Klein. On the show, I interview entrepreneurs and other professionals from throughout the French and greater European startup ecosystems. We look at some of the interesting new developments that have taken place in France over the last few years and how the country is developing into a startup nation. On Radical Departures, you'll hear founders of some of the hottest companies share their stories and important things they've learned along the way. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review in iTunes. This is episode 34 of the Radical Departures podcast. My guest today is Lauren Heine, CEO and co-founder of Predictus. Predictus is a mobile lending platform for emerging markets that draws on users' data to help give them access to loans where and when they're needed. Lauren has lived, worked, and studied in numerous countries and is now building and expanding Predictus here in Paris, currently for the Nigerian market. In this episode, we talk about how Predictus uses a combination of machine learning and human intelligence to determine how and to whom they give loans, where their next markets will be, challenges they've faced, and much, much more. So without further ado, here's episode 34 with Lauren Heine. So my guest today is Lauren Heine, CEO of Predictus. Welcome, Lauren. Hey. So tell us about Predictus. Yeah, right. So what we're doing is uh, we're a Paris-based company. And our goal is to to give access to credit to uh, today more than 3 billion people that don't have access to credit. And how we do that is uh, we're developing an application that's called Fair Money. And uh, with this application, we're analyzing uh, data that people store on their smartphone in order to give them well, in order to allocate a risk score, a credit score to these people, and then also underwrite credit on our own balance sheet. So more practically, it's what we do in markets like, for example, Nigeria, where traditional banks don't give credit. People, our customers download an application. They ask for a loan, which would usually be between 20 and the equivalent of 20 to approximately 200 euros. And so we scan their phone for relevant data and with this data, this data can be personal data, it can be behavioral data, it can be financial information. And based on that data, we then build a credit score and uh, we use that credit score to allocate a credit to, to our customers. And yeah, so that's what we do. Today, we're, I would say, pretty early. So we're in seed stage company. Well, so far, we have around 150,000 downloads of our application in our first market in Nigeria, given around 5,000 loans, small loans on average 50 euros. And yeah, we, we're growing pretty fast, so we're very excited about the future. So tell us, how did this start? How did you get this idea? What's led you to this point? Okay, so we started the company around eight months ago in Paris. I started the company together with two co-founders that I worked with already. I can give you some background on how we came to the idea. I used to be the CEO of a, of a startup studio. What that is, it's a venture builder. We built multiple companies before. We look at problems. We look at problems and try to think of solutions. And in 2017, I realized that, okay, so in the country of my dad, which is Nigeria, a lot of people don't have access to credits. Just to give you one number, I think around 3% of the population have a credit card. Wow. So there we talk about a population of 200 million, which is, well, three times as France. So Yeah, scale is a little bit different. <laughs> yeah, scale is different. And so, so I thought, okay, why does that problem exist? And so we looked at banks, traditional banks in Nigeria. I mean, Nigeria is traditionally a very illiquid market. 
uh, where traditional banks just don't do credit. And if they do credit, they do collateral back credit, which means you go to a bank, say, okay, I want to borrow X amount. And so the bank then looks at what do you have as collateral? Do you have a house, a car, anything that we can take as security? Or do you have cash? So I give you cash, but for that, you need to have the same amount. So it was it's really a big problem in the society. So I've seen that. And I thought, what can we do better than a traditional bank? And at that same time, I've looked a bit about alternative underwriting methodologies. So how do other companies solve that issue in, in other markets? Uh, maybe not in Africa, but I looked at Latin America, also Eastern Europe, where there's the same uh, capital scarcity. And I've, I found some companies that are using, starting to use alternative data points um, for, for credit underwriting. Most of these companies work with the technology they've built on desktop. So for desktop users, clients that ask for loans on a computer. And so in Nigeria, I think they're, well, almost, I would say almost none. You know, people really use mobile phones, smartphones. And so the original idea is, why don't we try to build a similar product, uh, but adapted for a population that is, uh, well, is using smartphones. And so that's when we kicked it off, launched our product. In the beginning, did a lot of test and learn. So gave loans without any methodology, actually, with a simple website. Seen there's a like huge appetite um, for this kind of product in the market, and then we started to develop an MVP of our application, and that's how we got to to where we are today. And what kind of barriers did you face? I mean, I'll ask you more about challenges later, but what kind mm. of initial barriers did you face to entry in this kind of market? I think there were multiple barriers. I would say, uh, first of all, convincing people that that's a good idea. I guess every entrepreneur knows that. But if you go to a market like Nigeria, which people usually think about as a very risky market. That was the first barrier. So explaining, okay, guys, that's a huge market, uh, has a lot of possibilities and opportunities. If you manage to to manage your risk properly, then Nigeria can be an immensely interesting market. So that was the first barrier. Then, of course, also lots of operational. In the end, there's a reason why people think there's uh, Nigeria, there's a lot of risk or emerging markets generally right. are to a lot of risk. And that you see if you then start your company, if it's just about incorporation, like very like the basic stuff incorporating your company, uh, trying to open a bank account, all of that is just a bit more difficult in a market like Nigeria. And I don't think it's this only in Nigeria. We will face the same uh, in, in other markets that are more, uh, I would say, emerging. I'd say every opportunity has its risk. And in this kind of markets, it's just a bit harder to execute, a bit harder to do things that are pretty easy. In, in France, you have to deal with uh, things like corruption, uh, things like it's pretty difficult to find, you know, reliable workers and so on. But uh, in the end, I think for each of the challenges so far, we found a good solution. And so you're, yeah. you've been building all of this at a distance as well, because you're now based in Paris. Yeah. So me, I'm based in Paris, but one of my co-founders just moved to Nigeria. He's a French guy with him. I created the company. He moved to build our operational team there. So now I'm based in Paris because I'm mainly doing fundraising at the moment. So my, my co-founder is in Nigeria. And in the beginning, it was mainly me being in Nigeria, like doing the basic things like incorporation, kicking off the operations, finding the first stuff that was me. Then I came back to the fundraising, and so he moved there. How do you go about making connections, like initial connections? You mentioned your dad is from there, but where do you start? Well, it depends a bit on the business. In the end, I think from what I've seen building business in, in France and in Nigeria, you always do the same. You try to understand who's your customer. Then you're trying to build a legal structure around the company. You're trying to find people. And so in the end, it's really not that different. It's just a question of you know how, how hard it is to create a company and doing all of those things. To make connections, I have some friends there. I do have family there, but nothing that would have really changed our life. It would also have not been very good if that would have changed our life because now we want to go to and other markets. So we start to test other markets and so on. And there we really start from zero. Did you have any local advisors who, who helped you along the way, mentors or? Not at all, no. It would, would have made some things easier maybe 
in the beginning, we did not have any local advisors. I mean, I do have some friends that are running companies there, so that helped to a certain extent. Finding a lawyer that's reliable and so on. And actually, we've also worked a bit with the French embassy there just to find good lawyers, you know, good accountants and so on. But in the end, it's, it's still up to you or in this case to us to execute well. So tell us a bit more about the, the actual product itself. How does it work? How does it use that data? What we do in the end uh, on a higher level is if you want to build a credit model, how it works is that you're giving a certain subset of loans. So let's say uh, you give 5,000 loans. And while giving these 5,000 loans, you're looking at what is the data that a client stores? What is, what is the data? How is the data structure that the customer has on its phone? And so while you store all of that, you're looking who is actually repaying. In the beginning, you do that without a, a huge filter. So you don't want to have too much bias of your own human perception of who will be repaying. So if you want to build a, a company that is based on you know, a machine learning technique, you don't want to introduce too much human bias, as in I think someone from the north will pay less than the south or so. Right. Because we really, don't, we really can't understand that. So ideas, our idea was and is uh, today to, well, in the beginning, we were giving loans without a big of a filter. And then you, see, you actually you, you start to see who is repaying and what do those that don't repay have in common. So, and then you're looking for causations and correlations in between the behavior of someone that doesn't pay versus vice versa, someone that does pay. And so then you can say, then after a certain, a certain size of your loan, loan portfolio, you start to see uh, these correlations. So you can say, okay, um, well, there are many examples that we could bring now, but we can say that someone that comes from a certain, well, someone that moves a lot, for example, is, is more likely to repay or Actually, something that we've realized in the very beginning, women are way better repairs than men. I could have told you that. Yeah, right. <laughs> I've heard that pretty often so far. So. But also, of course, way more complex things as in, uh, you know, how does a customer, how and with whom does a customer communicate? And what, what is the impact of this kind of behavior on, on his repayment probability? And so with that information then we use in order to, well, first of all, decide who do, who do we give a loan in the future and also decide... Um, what kind of products can we create for different risk categories? As in, for example, um, so if we know that a certain client category is less likely to repay, we would give them less likely to repay in a certain time frame, we would give them longer maturities, for example. Or if we know that someone is self-employed, we would give them different uh, repayment cycles. So someone that is self-employed today, something we're testing is we, we see um, people that are self-employed, do they pay better if they actually have weekly repayment cycles? Because they, from our loans, they buy something and then they produce something and they resell it. And they do that weekly and not monthly. And so for them, we've seen, okay, it's pretty hard to pay a monthly loan, but it's much more easier to actually take a weekly loan, buy something, produce something, and then sell it weekly. There's a lot of that is about data, but also a lot of that is a human aspect, understanding your customer, understanding the customer needs. What is the balance between the human aspect mm. and the machine learning aspect? Actually, it's just two different teams. How it works, we have a data team here in Paris that looks at the data and tries to understand it and tries to build a model that results in the you know, best possible uh, repayment rates. And then we have someone that does product and usually the one that does product in between the tech team and the customer. So, And this person that does product then looks at the output of the model and makes it more understandable. So it says, okay, I've talked to this and this customer. Now, if I'm looking at the data, actually, I can make that and that consequence. And this is the, this is the result out of it. And what are yeah. some of the, the mechanisms for getting feedback from your customers yeah. or potential customers? Lots of different feedback. As soon as you, you know, start to have a certain amount of downloads, we have had more than 150,000 applications. 
And so, you know, people start to give you feedback. If you ask, Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. But it's uh, all interesting. It's all sure. interesting for sure. And, and you see that in the Google Play Store, if people download our application, they're like, ah, why didn't I give the loan? Uh, what have I done? Or great, that's the best app I've ever seen. So that there you already start to get some feedback. Then all of those will probably also write you emails. And then if you want to have more specific um, feedback on something that you're planning to do, for example, it is up to you to define a, a survey. Um, for example, when I was giving the example of weekly payments, this is nothing you just want to decide uh, because you want to ask the customer, do you actually pay, like, do you want to repay on a weekly basis or monthly basis or maybe yearly basis? And so what you do is you're contacting 50% of your customers via email or you call them and you ask them specific questions that you've thought about before. You ask these questions to all of the customers and then then you have some data that you can analyze. Sometimes we also, you know, we talk to them via WhatsApp. It's really, the best channel is obviously meeting them, but at a certain volume, it's hard to meet all of them. So you have to choose your, choose right. your battle there. What are some indicators that you've seen of, of people's repayment likelihood? I mean, I would categorize that in two categories. Number one, things that are known in microfinance. And number two, things that, you know, we start to see now because we collect data that usually microfinance banks don't. So I've given you the example of women pay better than men. Uh, or cash flow being a big indicator of repayment. These are like the classic things. Then there are also more specific things that we start to see now. Or for example, the way people communicate. The way also people communicate with the same contact. So now at the moment, we are running some network analysis. And so we see, okay, who's our clients? How many contacts do they have? In the, how many friends do they have on Facebook? How many contacts do they have on their phone? And then we correlate that with repayment. And what we've seen is, is pretty interesting. We see that people that have more contact with the same contacts, for example, so have more regular contact with the same contacts, those are more likely to repay. So there you start to see some correlations that you know, a regular bank would never be able to capture. And then based on that information, you can then you know, tailor your, your products and understand better the risk categories. And have you run into any difficulty with data privacy, people having issues with you being able to access everything and analyze everything? And no, so far we haven't. I think one of the very important points is how we deal with that data on our level. Um, so I think for our, from a customer perspective, we're in a situation where the customer wants to have a loan and we need to give them this customer a credit score. So for that, we need information. I think that is clear for us. It's also clear for the customer. And that's why we, in the startup language, we would talk about churn. So how many customers churn at the step when we ask them for X to access to, well, for example, the SMS and, and so on. We almost see no churn. So customers are okay to share the data. What's, however, important for them is that, you know, we store it and don't share it. And so at the very beginning, we, we made the decision that data that the customer shares with us is data that stays with us. We won't monetize on that and, uh, or, you know, or get any other financial incentive on storing that data or, or processing the data. So the data stays with us and then we, we don't share it. However, for the customer, it's, we've never seen it. It's really a concern. And to go back a little bit into your personal background, what sure. led you here? What brought you to Paris? Um, so before I came to Paris, um, maybe in the very beginning, I'm, I'm born in Germany. My dad's from Nigeria. I've done my studies in the Netherlands, in The Hague, where I studied international corporate law. Then I, I, did, I studied a bit in Southeast Asia, in Indonesia for one year. And finally, I ended up creating a food delivery startup in Sweden, in Stockholm, with some of my school friends. It's a bit like what you see in France here, Frischti or Deliveroo. It's a bit in the same sector. In the end, the, the company didn't work out. And so I was left with two choices. Either, well, I, I continue studying law and I had a, a study place at the London School of Economics or I study corporate finance in, in France where I was accepted at Sciences Po. 
And so I looked at both options. I, I liked the well, possibility of learning a new language. So I, I chose uh, Paris. And then in the very beginning, before I actually started my, my studies, I met, well, I met an alumni of my university with whom I then created the venture capital fund that I, that I led for three years before starting Predictors. And tell us a little bit more about the startup studio. Well, I think in the beginning when we started that, um, that company, we had the hypothesis that building a company usually requires very similar skill sets. You need like a, let's call it a nurture ground to build a, a successful company. One aspect is certainly capital. I've seen that with predictors now that it's just very, very you know, useful having capital in the beginning. Helps you to execute better. One of the things was co-founders, capable co-founders that have really complementary skill set. And then maybe the third one is just network, knowing the right people, understanding who to ask if you have a question. And so with the startup studio, actually, we've really seen ourselves as a product to someone that wants to start a company. So um, someone that has an idea or even not even an idea, uh, just wants to start a company, he could come to the startup studio and we would, you know, give him all of the different uh, parameters that are necessary to build a company. Sometimes it was our idea that people started to build their company. Or most of the time we provided capital, always we provided network, and sometimes we also provided co-founders. And yeah, so that was basically the idea behind. And then we, you know, we built that company for two and a half years. Predictors was actually, is now actually the fourth company that, well, me now in the capacity of a CEO, but in total, the studio has produced four companies. Yeah, I was going to say, did you, was that one of the ideas that you came up with and you said, wait, wait a minute, I don't want to give this one away. I want to build this myself. Yeah, exactly. So I think one of my co-founders, Mathieu, he, he joined me in the startup studio in the very beginning, 2017. Actually, he used to be the, one of the lead developers of a company called Price Match that was acquired by Booking.com in 2015. After that, he had started another company in the airspace industry, which didn't really work out for multiple reasons. And so in 2017, he came to the startup studio and said, look, uh, I'm not done yet with entrepreneurship. I, I would like to you know, build another company. And so we started to test many things uh, together. In the beginning, it was more, okay, he's a technical co-founder. Me, I'm doing the startup studio thing. And afterwards, we find him a CEO. In the end, we worked pretty well together. I think we have a good um, good fit in many, many different competencies. And, and so it, you know, we ended up saying, okay, wait, actually, so that works good as a team. My third co-founder, Nico, was also working at the studio at that time as product. He was owning product, the head of product. We've seen, okay, it works well. And, and then we, well, we've seen the idea of Predictus and we said, okay, let's, let's do that. That's very cool. And so why did you choose Nigeria? We've spoken about this before, but I yeah. think it's really interesting yeah. as your first market. So we chose Nigeria because, well, first I knew the market. You've asked me before if we had like, some mentoring or advice, we did not, but at least we had access to the market. You know, I'm, I have, I'm Nigerian national, so things there allowed us to go a bit faster than other markets. If you're still looking a bit for product market fit, it is good if you're in a market where you understand the environment at least a bit, you understand a bit the customer. You can travel to the country without needing to apply for a visa and so on. And that was the reason why, uh, you know, why we started to do the first tests in Nigeria, not even knowing that this would be the country that we kick it off, but just to do some tests. And then when we seen, okay, there is a lot of uh, demand for a product, we started to look more in legal aspects and realized, okay, that's a market where product can work out. Market is very huge. And the market will allow us to grow in the beginning um, without us needing to go to another second market because market is not big enough. And so all of these parameters together then made us decide, let's kick it off there. And what have been some of the biggest challenges overall as an entrepreneur that you've faced that you've seen in Startup Studio and now that you have faced with Predictus and as you said, you've overcome? Well, I think in the Startup Studio also we've, just as an additional information, we've also done a, a number of deals. So we're functioning like a regular investment fund. We've done around 15 deals, I think, in, in the two years. And what I see as in challenges to, to create a company is, is usually uh, 
Well, there are multiple challenges. I think first on a personal level, it's extremely demanding. You need to be ready to invest all of your time in only one thing and not lose focus and start to do other projects at the same time. We've seen that happening sometimes. I think another thing that you need to be comfortable with is, especially in the beginning, not trying to plan how you will execute for too long. Because in, in the end, you need to be stay extremely flexible. You need to have a vision and you need to know the problem that you want to solve. But if, you, you know, if you're just trying to execute a roadmap for two or three years, it will never work. Because the customer, you know, customers change their mind. In the beginning, maybe you're not able to fully understand the customer's problem. And so you need to stay extremely flexible. And we've seen that with many founders that we've seen in the, in the VC industry or in the startup studio or also now for us. I think it's, it's extremely challenging to change your direction pretty often and you know, adapt to what the customer wants, adapt to the circumstance of the market you're in and so on. Did you always consider yourself an entrepreneur? Is this always what you wanted to do? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. I've done an internship in a company while I was studying and that I didn't really like. And so afterwards, I've just started companies. Uh, in the university, I started a social network for, for the African diaspora called Afriyuka. I think the website still exists. Then uh, I started this food delivery company, which I loved. I mean, it, was, it didn't work, but it was just great. Afterwards, when I was working in VC, it was also a lot of entrepreneurship. You know, you're, you're trying to find a way, trying to find new deals. Um, and now, well, I can't really see myself working for a company or in a bigger company now. What do you think about you personally has made you so suited to this? Like you, you seem very, you know, you talked about being adaptable. You're very flexible. Go with the flow. My both parents are also entrepreneurs. So my mom is a psychologist. She has like a her own place that she managed. My stepfather is uh, also an entrepreneur. He has an IT, IT company. My dad is an entrepreneur. He does import-export from Nigeria to Europe. So actually, I thought about it the other day. And besides my uncle, no one in my family is doing really like a regular employment. I think if you grow up like that, then you're just extremely biased. Towards yeah, you come by it honestly. <laughs> yeah, you're just extremely biased to, towards that direction. I mean, I see the you know, advantages of like a regular employment also, maybe later, but I'm very good where I'm in that position. So what's next for Predictus? Currently, we are closing a fundraising, a 1 million fundraising, um, that will help us to do two things. A, penetrate the, the Nigerian market a bit deeper, as in uh, develop our product, get more customers, and also have a, grow a balance sheet that allows us to give more loans. And also build a more, I would say, comprehensive product suite. As in, today we offer loans. We're thinking about you know, other products like saving products, allowing customers to do transfers and so on, so that if you think about, about it as the vertical line, today we do loans. And for us, that's the entry ticket, basically, to develop a whole other product suite. And I think this fundraising that will allow us to you know, do that, execute that. And of course, also a very, very big topic for us is now internationalization. If you talk to investors, usually they ask you, okay, this methodology, so does it work in Nigeria? That, that's okay. But does it also work anywhere else? And so now we have to prove that what we've developed is not the... Nigerian product, but it also, you know, the methodology will also work in other markets. Do you have any in your sites? Yeah, I mean, actually how we work is just to make the connection with what's the biggest challenge. You know, we've made a lot of plans on which markets we can go to. And, but in the end, what you do is you really test. So what we're currently doing is we, you know, we launch our products in multiple, multiple markets and we just see of how the customer interacts with it. Is there a big traction for our product? Do customers download it? What is the cost we pay for a customer downloading this product? And then, you know, and then we see, okay, uh, that is the market that can be interesting. Afterwards, you, of course, do also a lot of other analysis. And so there we currently look at, uh, we look at some African markets, also Western African markets. And we also look at, at Asian markets, uh, more Southeast Asia. I mean, for us, the largest markets are obviously more interesting, most interesting. 
because uh, there you have a you know fixed setup cost. But then you you can in the deep market you don't need to again apply for another license. So we look at India, for example, just to give you one example. We look a bit at Indonesia, which is very interesting from a lending perspective. There are multiple other markets, of course. So Lauren, thank you for joining me. I really appreciate it. Yep. One last question before you go: How do you personally define success? For me personally, success is very equivalent to happiness. Actually, being successful also means to be happy because. You know, if the, I think the word success is usually in a stereotype, it's connected to maybe wealth or money, which I find inherently wrong, actually. For me, I mean, personal success means probably a connection of multiple different things, as in being in happy relationships, being successful and professional, what you do professionally. And uh, for me personally, probably a big part of that is also building a successful company. It's a word that you can't really apply to every person. Everyone has its own definition. For me personally, it's a mix of many things. Thanks. Thanks to you. <laughs> that wraps up another episode of Radical Departures. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave us a review and let us know who you'd like to hear on the show. Catch you next week. <laughs>